It's good to see you. Uh, just so you know, stylistically, uh, I, I'm good with give and take uh, to the extent that you're comfortable with it. Uh, so I don't have any expectations for you to shout out amen or to say good morning or do anything. But if you do or you feel comfortable with that, I'm great with that. Um, it's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, before we open up the book of Acts, I just want to locate uh, where uh, this is taking place and what's happening. Uh, in the Old Testament, God made promises to his people, Israel. And those promises, uh, for the most part, played themselves out in the ancient Near Eastern world, from Egypt uh, up to where modern-day Israel is. And it was with that one ethnic group in that one particular region that much of God's promises begin to push their way out. But 2,000 years ago, when Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene, and as he announces that God's kingdom has arrived, and it's arrived in such a way that it's going to move far beyond the ethnic boundaries of Israel and far beyond the ancient Near Eastern world to the ends of the earth, in the book of Acts, we get to see God's promises beginning to work out. They're going from local to global. They're going from one nation to international. And that is uh, those promises that started way back with Abraham uh, and in the ancient Near Eastern world continue in our day and time to be operative in our lives. And so in the book of Acts, and particularly in chapter 17 that I'm about to read from, where we find ourselves is this news of the rapidly expanding reality of the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus being made known. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them to Acts 17. I'm going to read verses 22 through 34. It will also be printed on the screens up front. I would encourage you to follow along. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, that God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, well, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word, that wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether it is searching for where our hearts may worship, or whether, whether it is in need of encouragement after years of service, God, I pray that you will be near to us by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. A few years back, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly by Eleanor Smith, and she really is telling the story of Christopher Charles. Christopher Charles was a Canadian epidemiologist who spent quite a bit of time in Cambodia. And while in Cambodia, one of the things that he recognized in the population was anemia, a medical condition where people did not live with enough iron circulating in their blood. Uh, typically related to dietary reasons. And he noticed that particularly with women uh, and children, about 50% of the population was affected. This comes with it a whole host of uh, morbidity rates uh, increasing uh, and problems. And so Charles set out to fix this. How can we help people whom are struggling with uh, uh, what uh, should be a very solvable problem? And so he kind of runs through the catalog of typical fixes. You can give people iron pots, uh, in which case the iron kind of leaches out as they boil water or make stew or cook, and uh, that becomes then part of their diet. But uh, they found that that was just too expensive of a fix for rural Cambodians. They couldn't afford that type of cookware. Um, And so uh, here's where the story takes an interesting twist. Charles wonders, well, what if I gave them an iron block that they could put inside when they're the pot, when they're boiling water? So they're aluminum pots, but if they put this iron block in while the water is boiling or while the food is cooking, could you have the same effect? And he, he postulates this. And so he said, he begins to pass out iron blocks. Here's an iron block for you. Here's an iron block for you. Here's an iron block for you. And he comes back in a few months to check to see, uh, is this working? Is this addressing the problem of anemia? And what does he find? He finds that uh, the people are using the iron blocks, but not in their food. Uh, They're using the iron blocks as like doorstops and to like level out their table. And they're using it for practically every way that you could use an iron block, except actually putting it in their food, because who wants to drop an iron block in their food or in their boiling water? And so he realized, okay, well, this isn't going to work. And so he began to sat and listen to the leaders of the Cambodian culture through which he's trying to engage. 
And what he learns is, uh, as part of their culture, there is a fish. And it's a fish that's particular to them, but it's thought of to be very lucky. And so he has an idea. He thinks, what if I take that same iron substance, but I cast it in the mold of this fish that culturally is viewed as a sign of luck or good health, and then I ask people to begin to put the fish into their food, will it work? And so he goes through the process of doing that and comes back after some months, and this has become an adopted practice. Uh, People are open to integrating this into uh, their daily lives of cooking, and the anemia that afflicted the Cambodian uh, culture through whom he's engaging, that anemia is eradicated. And this is a helpful illustration to think through the reality of the spiritual anemia that we all face. Uh, There is a spiritual anemia, a a need, a pressing in on where uh, whether you read the news and explore for yourself and think, man, the world just seems like a broken place. Or whether it is your own individual and personalized struggles with uh, what you're doing in life and where you're going and whether or not it makes a difference. There is a sense that we all struggle against a spiritual anemia. We have uh, a fight to live in such a way and engage in such a way that our lives have meaning. And for Paul in the first century in Athens, he is engaging that same problem. The spiritual anemia that we face because of the fallenness of our world and our own sinful inclinations, that is our own pattern of running or rebelling from God or trying to be self-sufficient and do it on our own, this isn't a new disease. It's a disease that goes way back, way, way back. And so Paul is writing, or in this case, Luke is writing about Paul's engagement in Athens to declare to people that the treatment for their spiritual anemia is here. And he does it, we're going to cover his engagement with them in three points. A common design, a caring designer, and conquering death. So first, a common design. And in verses 22 and 23 of this passage, Paul has been invited in. He had been in the marketplace, and he gets invited up out of the marketplace to walk the steps to go to where all of the learned people are. And so he finds himself uh, talking with the scholars of the day. And uh, it is this moment, kids, uh, you may know this, you kind of go through life and then at some point mom or dad or your guardian says, "Uh, we need to talk. And they have that look on their face, right? We need to talk. Uh, uh, And uh, it is, you don't always know what's coming next, but what you know is like, hey, there's something of substance here. There's something serious that uh, is about to be engaged on. And this is Paul meeting together with the leaders and scholars and knowledgeable uh, people in his day in a we need to talk moment. And Paul begins by recognizing in verses 22 and 23, there is a common design that is at play here. That as he has explored the city, both their spiritual need, as well as their pursuit for a fix, he has seen. And it's one that he is familiar with. 
Because it is enrooted, it is part of how humans, all of us, are designed. And it is uh, a need that crosses culture and time. It is a fundamental need that's human. And here's where this is important for us. About seven years ago, uh, when we moved my family and I to Silver Spring to begin planting a church uh, and began working out uh, what it would look like to start a new faith community in uh, a, a very dense area of the metro D.C., uh, then what we were working out on was that same principle, that humans are humans. And that their fundamental spiritual needs are unchanged. And that as Christians, we have a sense of how to meet that fundamental need. But that there's not a generic block of iron that you can just go handing out to everyone. That it doesn't work that way. And so that when new churches are started, then you have to invest in deeply to that place. You have to learn the specifics of that culture. In a sense, you have to know their language. And that is something that unites Cornerstone and Mosaic Silver Spring. Because while Silver Spring is not exactly like your area, we are united in trying to work out and meet the spiritual needs that are human. That is what drives mission. That's what makes it work for you to say, hey, we'll support a church happening there. Because you can recognize that our design and the fundamental need is the same. It's why you can do work in places like Guatemala. Why you can do work in places like the Philippines. Why you can go to Japan. Right? That, that mission works itself out because it is connected not only to our humanness, but to what God is doing in the world. That just as Paul is presenting to the Athenians their common design, that is rooted in a designer who has made promises and who is working them out to the ends of the earth. And so we share not just a common design, but a caring designer. In verses 24 through 28, Paul unpacks for them while the reason why the treatment he's pointing to is unique. Right? As Paul walked around Athens, it wasn't lost on him that there were lots of people trying to worship. Right? There was a worship impulse. But Paul's saying, you're missing something. And that inscription to an unknown God, I'm going to point to you what it is that you're missing. Right? And he does this effectively in 24 through 28 with two key points. The first is that the God that I point you to isn't fashioned by human hands. He can't be mocked. He can't be mimicked. He can't be illustrated through wood or stone or gold. He can't be crafted because he is the creator. So the creation can't make the creator. It works the other way around. That's Paul's point. The God in whom we serve, he has created the entire world and all that's in it. He's created you and me. And so uh, we worship him on his terms. But more than just a creator, he is a caretaker. The theological fancy term for this is providence. It is the idea that while God has created our world, he hasn't disengaged from it. That even though we may be struggling and at times failing and failing bad, God hasn't left us alone. 
He continues to know who we are and engage in us, with us. He is redeeming his people. He is making good on his promises, not because we've earned it, not because we've done so well, not because we've responded perfectly. We haven't. He's making good on his promises because he's God. And when he gives his word, he makes good on it. And so through Paul, he is calling the Athenians and us to consider what it is we worship and to direct our worship to the one whom it's due. Now, I know when I use the phrase worship, for some of you who grew up in church, you know what worship is. You're like, oh, yeah, worship, right? We sing some songs. We do some slow songs. We do some fast songs. uh, We do some deeper theological songs. Then we have songs that have some verses that we kind of marinate our souls in. Uh, We pray together. Uh, we hear some announcements, and we hear from God's word, and that's worship, right? But for Paul, his call to worship is a little more expansive than that. It is a little bit more rooted in uh, the normal day-to-day life. And he is recognizing, not just for the Athenians, but for us, that there isn't just one call to worship. There's competing calls to worship. Here's what I mean. Each of us, I think, faces, at least in a fairly wealthy Western country, a materialistic call to worship. Here's what a materialistic call to worship looks like. When your neighbor gets a new truck or an SUV. Uh, When your good friend gets a new outfit or a piece of jewelry. Kids, when uh, someone comes up on the newest video game system or a new toy. That impulse in your heart to say, I need that. I want that. My life would be so much better if I could just get that. That impulse, that's a call to worship. That is a materialistic call to say you assign value to what you have. And the more that you have, the more valuable you feel. That is hearing a materialistic call to worship and saying, oh, amen. I'll take a new truck or uh, a new outfit or a new whatever. Resist that materialistic call to worship. Worship isn't always the singing of songs or the praying of prayers. It's how you assign value to your own life. It's how you think through your own worth. And when you respond to a materialistic call to worship, in effect, what you're saying is, I'm defined by what I have, by what I own, by what I accomplish. Resist that call. There's also a perfectionistic call to worship. Parents, you know what I mean. Has your kid ever thrown a fit in a public place, like in a restaurant, and then people start to give you that look? Uh, here's how it goes, okay? Uh, particularly like, uh, it, and if you're single, uh, pay attention because we want you to learn how to be gracious to the parents in the room. Uh, so it's like, it's the look like, can't you just get your kid to be quiet? And in your heart, you are tempted to like, ah, shh, 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 calm down, Timmy. Joni, whatever your kid's name is, be quiet. People are looking. That is the perfectionistic call to worship. They may think I'm not perfect or that I can't control my kids. The impulse to go, I've got I've to have the appearance that I have it all together. I, I, I have to make sure everyone knows I'm trying really hard and I have it all together. When you find your value in how well your kids behave or in how well your eval says you are in your workplace, or how well your report card says you did, when you root your value in that, you are responding to a perfectionist call to worship in a way that you're not designed to respond. 
just as a side note, because I think this is important when we think through this in, with cross-cultural lenses, for those of you who are here and you're a minority in various contexts, you face that perfectionistic call to worship at times as well. That is, when you are the only woman in a male-dominated boardroom, you begin to feel like, as a woman, you're representing all womanhood. And that impulse, that pressure to be perfect, to be better than perfect, to show everybody that you have it together because you deserve to be here, when you root your identity in that, then you have to be careful not to respond to that perfectionistic call. As if, as a woman, in that context, you only have value if you're perfect. The same is true if you are a minority in a given majority culture context, whether that's black or Korean or Chinese or uh, British, uh, that if you're an ethnic minority in a given context, that somehow you speak for all British people or you speak for all black people or you speak for all Korean people, and then when people ask you questions, then you're supposed to know everything about everybody. There is a push, right, that then you root your value in representing well in ways that aren't fair to you and that they're not fair to your own heart in terms of how you assign value. And so to that, Paul is saying, resist that call to find your value there. Finally, there's a secular call to worship. And in our day and age, that is an increasingly common and more powerful call to worship, and that is to not worship at all. You have a good job got a good education why do you need all that harry potter stuff in the bible there's a conflation of anything mythic right anything that can't be proven anything that's not objective right why do i need any of that and that that call is one that i think increasingly both individual and as a community we will face uh, in an enlightened day where there is a value on everything that we can prove and all that our technology can deliver for us why would you need a creator and a caretaker when you can have the iPhone 10? That's the call. To, that's the secular call to worship. But in the face of those various calls to worship, there is a Christian call to worship. One where there is a creator of the world, one who cares enough to pay the cost to bring about the treatment of your most fundamental spiritual disease through his son. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the son of God, would take on humanity so that when that materialistic call comes, you can say, uh-uh. When that perfectionistic call comes, you can say, no way. When that secular call comes, you can say, I need more. And that you can turn to Jesus through faith and receive the treatment that only he can provide, the one that God himself bore the cost of, that Jesus, not only humbling himself to the point of taking on humanity in his incarnation, but to the point of death on a cross, so that your spiritual bondage could be released, so that your spiritual debts could be paid, so that your most pervasive spiritual disease could be cured in Jesus Christ. That is the good news of Christianity. That is the Christian call to worship. And one that comes not just on Sundays, right? This morning we, we had a call to worship at the top of the order from First Chronicles 16. And that, that's a formal call to worship. But there's more than just that formal call. It's the call to worship when you hear those other calls and you say, I am delivered 
through faith in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. It's the call that the Heidelberg Catechism will play out in its first question. What is your only hope in life and death? My only hope is that I'm not my own, but that I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. The Christian call to worship is one that plays out in your highs when you tend to think, I earn this, I deserve this, I can do what I want. In your arrogance, hear the Christian call to worship to say, no, you have a creator and you had a need that only he could pay. But it also, and I want you to hear this, particularly if you're here this morning and you're hurting, you're facing, you woke up this morning and rolled out of bed and you're hurting. That was hard. You bear shame and and people don't need to tell you what your burden is because you know what it is every morning you wake up. There is a tendency to think God has left you, that he's departed from you, that he's not near to you. And so when you hear the Christian call to worship, I don't want you to process that as more shame or you don't deserve it. What you should hear is that God loves you, and that he calls you daughter, that he calls you son, and that he has provided for you. That when you respond to that call in worship, you have freedom to be set free from the weight of sin and shame. That cost of conquering death is the one that Jesus took on himself. And as we think through how that plays out in our lives, one way is that it brings freedom. The freedom to resist those other calls of materialism, perfectionist uh, tendencies. But that it is also a call to faithfulness. In uh, the Atlantic Monthly article when Eleanor Smith is writing, she concludes with this powerful quote at the end. She says this about uh, the work of Christopher Charles. She says, The genius of the lucky iron fish is that it doesn't have to be shaped like a fish. If we were to go to sub-Sahara Africa, in a dry or arid place where anemia was existed, but, you know, fish wasn't such a big part of the diet or wasn't a big part of the culture, we could very easily change that iron into a different form. And I found that so moving because as we participate in God's mission as a community, and we're connected because of our common design and the reality of sin facing uh, humanity everywhere, The work of figuring out the right form to deliver that substance is hard, and it requires faithfulness. And so what that means is when we start new churches to particular areas, we are thinking through and doing the work to say, maybe a fish doesn't work there. Maybe this type of liturgical style or worship music doesn't work there. Maybe these aren't the needs of the community, and so we have to engage in different ways. And so that the more we can start new churches in different areas, people can come in and communities can work together to faithfully love and serve the culture as they are best served. And so let me make a quick theological point here. The substance doesn't change. The iron is still iron. The good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel is unchanged no matter what culture you go to, right? That answer never changes. But the form in which people can hear or receive that can be adjusted. 
We have the freedom to do that, but it requires a tremendous amount of faithfulness. And so as a pastor and as a community, we are regularly talking about what are the actual needs that the people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces face. And those needs may be different from the needs here. And so Walt and Ryan and the staff here, they devote their time to be consciously working through what are the ways in which we can bring the reality of Jesus Christ and the treatment, the only one treatment for people's uh, most fundamental mental, spiritual disease in ways in which they'll understand, in the ways in which they'll be invited to engage. And so while it may look different, we can partner together in that labor. And you can rejoice that in Silver Spring there is now a church week in and week out proclaiming this good news to people that you were a part of planting, that you have partnered in. And that each subsequent church that gets planted, they are doing the work of faithfulness to say what is the form that would be most recognized here to accomplish the most good. So that at Mosaic, what ends up happening is we have this brand new faith community where over a third of the people weren't Christians before we arrived there. A third of the people, that, now their religious impulses may have been there. They may have grown up in church. They may have grown cynical. They may have come into a different phase of life. But their week in, week out participation in church wasn't. But now, because of your faithfulness in helping to plant other communities and then God strengthening us to bring the good news of Christianity there, then uh, people have come to believe. They have turned to Jesus Christ in faith and received freedom from their sin. And now we are working to plant more churches across the metro D.C. area because the number of people who are in need far outstrip the number of healthy churches who are faithfully trying to embody this and work it out. That is what we pursue when we think through faithfulness in light of the gospel. The God who designed us, the God who creatively engages us, the God through paying the cost himself has conquered death for us so that we can be adopted into his family. That is a message, a treatment that is unique to Christianity and one that God calls us to play out Every day that we have, not just in church on Sunday morning, but in our workplaces and neighborhoods, engaging people, responding to the Christian call to worship and inviting others in winsome ways to do the same. That is what it looks like to participate in mission together. And as Paul says here, there's a couple of quick notes that I'll end on. The first is, it's not always guaranteed to have some specific outcome. Right? When Paul shares this message of what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first response that Luke lists for us in Acts 17 is that people mocked him. That he wasn't being measured on how people responded. He was being measured on his faithfulness to proclaim this news of Jesus and Jesus resurrected. And so that the outcomes may vary. Right? Our call as Christian communities is to faithfulness. And the final note is that we, as humans, in that call to faithfulness, um, don't do it alone, right? It's not all on us. And so why God gives us gifts and while he gives us resources and we exercise those things faithfully, we have to be cautious not to think, well, God's given us all the tools, so we have to build it all ourselves. 
wonderful thing about God's mission is that he continues with a providential hand to engage our work, to strengthen us by the power of his spirit, to convict us when we go the wrong way or rebel, to invite us back in, to comfort our hearts, to lift us up, to strengthen our hands. God is with us. God is for us. And it is God who leads us. Let me pray that we'll be faithful to continue to respond to him until Jesus, our Lord and King, returns again. God, I ask that you will bless and care for Cornerstone and Mosaic Silver Spring this morning and the Port Towns Project and Emmanuel in Arlington, the works all across Metro D.C., that, God, they will be faithful in calling people to you, Jesus, and that they will do it in ways that are understandable, that are ways that are winsome, in ways that are faithful, but they will trust you by the power of your spirit to work in people's lives, to bring about the fulfillment of your promises in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.